Welcome to P.S. Blossom, a podcast series driven by purpose and the belief that each of us has the power to transform the world for the better. We are here to be a catalyst for activism. We believe empowering individuals empowers communities. We also recognize that unless we engage in the issues of race, gender, and class within reproductive and maternal health, we cannot be a part of the solution. Our goal with P.S. Blossom is to empower all women, especially Black, Indigenous, and women of color, to advocate for their health care their way. These are conversations creating change. Please be sure to like, subscribe, leave comments, and share. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of P.S. Blossom. I am Victoria Griffin, executive producer, and today we're going to talk immigrant and migrant women and help access at the intersection of policy and culture. It is with great pleasure that I introduce our guest for today, Inna Susan Valadares. Inna is the pro- director of programs at California Latinas for Reproductive Justice, She has worked on reproductive justice issues for nearly 15 years, primarily working on reducing health inequities and shifting narratives through community-informed research and policy. Anna, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself, including your love for going on hikes? Yes. Thank you, Victoria, for having me. It's very good to be here today. I was born outside of the U.S. in Guatemala. I migrated here when I was very young and Los Angeles is a big metropolis, but I've definitely found some gems and I live really close to Griffith Park and I absolutely love it. Yeah, you had a recent win with the signing of this budget request to compensate survivors of state-sponsored forced sterilizations. Can you talk to us about that? So... For about four years now, CLRGA, along with other partners, have been trying to get this budget request passed and approved by the both the legislature and the governor. And so it is with great relief that after these long four years, we were able to secure that when trying to pass this bill and this budget request was a testament to like decades of other folks calling attention to the fact that there were state-sponsored forced sterilizations that happened in California and that this isn't just something of the past. This isn't something that happened in the early 1900s. But in actuality, at less than 10 years ago, we found that the similar state-sponsored forced sterilizations were occurring in California women's prisons. The acknowledgement of this history and providing some form of monetary compensation is important, but this is something that is at the forefront of a lot of conversations in order to ensure that these forced sterilizations stop. That's a huge one. And I just want to say congratulations from us all at Blossom and from Edria. How did you feel? What was that moment like for you? Thank you for the congratulations. Personally, I felt relieved because for a lot of survivors, They were getting very fatigued and almost losing hope. And so for us, it was really important to ensure that we secure this win. 
some of the things we always carry with us are the stories, whether we're talking about the survivors themselves or family members that did not survive to see justice. We know that this was an aging population. We're talking about folks who were sterilized during California's eugenics laws, which is in the early 1900s through 1979, which was when the law was officially repealed. And so it was just really important to communicate that sense of urgency that a lot of survivors were not going to be around if we waited much longer. And then a lot of the folks who were sterilized in California's women's prison have no idea that this happened to them. And so there was also this sense of urgency for them to understand this is something that they need to know. We talk about the acknowledgement of this history. We talk about finding some semblance of justice for this incredible harm and violence that was done. But at the end of the day, we're talking about people's lives and the importance of acknowledging what happened to them and helping them process what happened to them, try to ensure that this doesn't happen again. You have a five-year-old named Omar as a parent. How did it affect you? Thank you for asking this question because I don't think for a long time, a lot of what I did for work, I really thought about impacted like my personal decision-making. It really hit me when I became, you know, a parent. One of the things that stays with me are when folks are, st- are sharing their stories. And in my situation, I have over and I was planning on expanding my family. And then I learned a couple of years ago that I have what is called secondary infertility. That basically means that folks just have a harder time getting pregnant subsequent times, whether that's the second time around, third time around. There was a lot of sadness attached to that. There was a lot of letting go of what I thought my family was going to look like. I'm an older parent, meaning that I decided to have children in my mid-30s. And so there's been a lot of thought around wanting Omar to have a sibling. And so when we were really hearing from survivors and really learning about these stories of forced sterilization, I just cannot fathom like having that decision taken away from me in in such a way where it wasn't like biological. It wasn't because my body was not ready or does not have the capacity any longer to get pregnant again, but it was because someone, an institution, an individual thought that I was not worthy enough to have my reproductive capacity respected or they thought that I was unfit to be a parent again. And so there's that level of like processing and sadness that you already have around what you envisioned about your family formation. But I just cannot fathom that feeling of having this decision taken away from me. It made me feel even deeper for this issue that we were fighting for and really pushing back against these notions of who is worthy of parenting and what does it mean to be a fit quote unquote parent? What does it mean to be a good parent. I think there's that that extra level of really wanting to fight harder because of that experience that I was going through. It's also thinking about other issues around reproductive decision-making, whether it's to end a pregnancy. And it's very interesting because I had a family member ask me, well, now that you're having problems 
bearing another child, how do you feel about abortion? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? What does that have to do with anything? She's like, yeah, do you still think that people should get abortions? And I'm just like, absolutely. Just because I'm having a hard time getting pregnant again doesn't mean that I'm going to turn around and be thank your lucky stars that you got pregnant. You absolutely cannot have an abortion. Like that has nothing to do with me. Like every situation is different. Every person, again, should have the ability to decide for themselves what makes sense for them in terms of having kids or not. And so I, I always find that interesting, right? When I get those questions from folks, no, you know, that this is happening to you. What do you think about that? And I'm like, nothing. It's I still feel, if anything, I feel stronger, right? Because we, again, we should all have that ability to make those decisions. What you just spoke to was very powerful. There's the assumption around the monolith experience, what one person experiences should determine what the entire community or culture should experience. And the other piece, it, it takes a very courageous and brave person to say, this is my experience. That does not mean that I cannot fight for other people to have their own decision-making. And so and I got emotional over here because it's, there are people that don't want this decision and they choose not to have children, which is completely acceptable and fine. And then there are people that don't even realize that it's been taken from them. And that is heartbreaking to think that someone else can determine your worth for you, yeah. which is not appropriate. So... I thank you for just speaking to that. It rolls into our next point around narrative shift and how do we change this culture around this thinking. And But before you dive into that, can you define what culture shift is so that people can take this journey with us of understanding how it can be shifted? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So this is how I understand it and what we do at CLRJ. So pretty much any issue, there is what we call dominant narrative, a dominant framework. A lot of times it's based on stereotypes, this one story that then is determined the case for everyone else that looks a certain way or identifies a certain way. And so culture shift for what us is disrupting that dominant framework, especially if it's steeped in stereotype, and then lifting out the many other stories that are involved with these different conditions or identities. Mm -hmm. So it's breaking that monolith and really showcasing the many different stories and experiences. And then the other thing is, is challenging those stereotypes. What are they based on? Who's enforcing them? When we look at stats and when we look at numbers, how is this information collected? And how is it interpreted? And, and who's pushing this out? That's another way that we think of, about culture shift. That's amazing. In thinking around the stages of culture shift and how narrative has changed, how does that show up in, in the work that you do? The best way that I can explain culture shift is by one of the projects that CLRJ has spearheaded called the Justice for Young Families Initiative. And it started about a decade ago with looking at how everyday policies impact young people. So in California, our laws are pretty good in the sense of respecting reproductive autonomy, being able to access services. 
specifically for young people. So not having to notify a parent or get parental permission to get birth control or to get reproductive health services, STI testing. And so we were really looking to see, do young people even know about this? Because in our world, a policy is great and all, but if people don't know that it actually exists, well, it's almost like, what's the point of it being there? It's not just the law that's critical, but it's also people knowing about what their rights are under this law. And so what we were finding, as you can imagine, there were like latent violations of young people's right to information, to health services. One of the things that was really glaring was how young parents, teen parents, were treated, especially in educational settings. So our initiative was really about youth sexuality, but with an emphasis on teen parenting specifically. Because at the time, there was a lot of negative rhetoric around teen parents. If you're a teen parent, your life is over, you're probably going to drop out of school, then you're going to become a drain on like state resources, just a very negative framework. The images that we would see in teen parents were of like these miserable people, irresponsible, incapable of parenting. None of this rhetoric, images, none of the way we're talking about young people really gets at the crux of the issue. Like the real economic opportunities, educational opportunities that young people feel they have. It doesn't get to like where they live. It doesn't get to are they immigrants or not, because that's going to help determine this notion that if you try really hard and you get good grades and you go to college, that that's not a reality. For a lot of young people, what we were finding is that parenting in some ways was the best life outcome for them. And so rather than vilifying or shaming them for that decision, we wanted to understand why. And that's how our beautiful JFYF initiative was born. It was amazing because a lot of the young people had these internalized messages about themselves. They felt very apologetic about their decision-making, and rarely did they share those moments of being proud that your little one grasped a spoon. Like all those milestones that parents generally look forward to, the saddest thing for me to see is how muted they had to be about showing joy, even about milestones and about just sharing how involved they were with reading or with projects. No one should ever be made to feel that way. Everyone should be able to celebrate those moments in parenting that bring you joy because it's hard being a parent. You don't want to dwell on the hardness all the time. We know it's challenging. And then for them to not be able to feel safe enough or judged, we worked with them. And really the goal was to establish a resolution and a, a Young Parents Day of Recognition. Once a year, we were able to use the social media campaign or showing the different facets, the different stories of what it means to be a young parent. So no way were we denying that it doesn't come with challenges, but we wanted to showcase that joy. We wanted to showcase the proud moment and the happiness that parenting can also bring and really push back against this notion that age defines what being a fit parent is. Young people get harshly uh, judged because they're not deemed fit to parent. They're not deemed responsible enough. They're not deemed to be equipped. And my pushback is, well, who is? So you're magically equipped when you're 30 years old. This initiative was really trying to 
change that narrative? Why are we placing all of this negativity on being a parent at a certain age when we know other factors that are going to help determine how well equipped you are to be able to parent? There's plenty of laws in place, federal and state laws, that protect young parents from being discriminated against. That was not being upheld. There were plenty of instances where we were hearing that young parents were being forced out of their advanced placement classes or honor roll or sports. And all of those are violations to Title IX. Title IX is a federal law. And a lot of folks may be familiar with Title IX when it comes to sports, like sports equity. We hear a lot about proper funding for female athletic programs. But in actuality, Title IX came out of ensuring that pregnant parenting or people that had decided to get an abortion were not discriminated against in educational settings. And it's been used in court cases to fight against sports discrimination or equity. But the reality was that this law was in place to specifically prevent discrimination of those pregnant and parenting. In addition to ensuring that these different stories of what it means to be a young parent was being upheld and uplifted and shared by, by young parents themselves, we were also pointing out how a lot of these laws were not being implemented or enforced correctly and how the improper implementation or enforcement of these laws contributes to the further discrimination and vilifying and shaming of young parents. And as far as those young people were concerned, it didn't exist. Our work was tackling the policy side a little bit, tackling that culture shift, equipping these young parents for them to feel confident in in sharing their stories, in feeling affirmed in their parenting skills and in their decisions around their children. It was really important that we were the intermediaries supporting them and understanding what those laws were, what their rights are, understanding like what a resolution would mean and how it would really push back against this negative talk about them. But it was really important for them to be able to share in their own words. A lot of that work was inviting them to legislative visits and having them lead those visits and talk to legislators about their stories and their needs and their experiences. It looked like co-presenting with them at different conferences and naming them as co-presenters for them to be able to share their own stories. And so to us, I think that's why this initiative has been so gratifying because it was multi-pronged. And we were able to take that spirit of culture shift and apply it to all these different areas of this work. Oh, wow. You spoke to this negative framework that exists for teen parenting, but it's also there around immigrant and migrant women and people and their journey within like the reproductive health ecosystem. So I know you've worked on reproductive justice issues for over a decade. Can you define what reproductive justice is. So reproductive justice was coined in 1994 by a group of Black women, but there was a lot of movement and activism that was happening way before 1994 that led to that moment of reproductive rights and health as we know it through a human rights and social justice lens. 
Reproductive rights, reproductive health, and reproductive justice are three separate frameworks. They are not interchangeable and they are absolutely not the same thing. When it comes to rights, that's where we think about laws and policies. Those are important, but in isolation, for a lot of people, it means nothing because either they don't know about it or there's flagrant dismissal of their rights under these laws. When we look at reproductive health, we're really talking about the services, the infrastructure of how people receive information or care. And obviously that is super critical. But in isolation, it's not very helpful because if you have a structure that is not culturally adequate or linguistically adequate or is open when people need or are available to go, that creates a lot of barriers. And so where the reproductive justice framework really comes in is looking at all of it. What are the existing laws? What are the existing policies? What is the existing infrastructure? And what are the barriers? What are the systems? What are the institutions that are preventing people from actually being able to get the care, the information, and the services that they need? There are four tenants under the RJ framework, the right to bodily autonomy, the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and then the right to parent our children in healthy and safe communities, free of violence. We're going to focus in on immigrant women. There's a system of immigration that might be impeding them from being able to be with their children. Policies where you're separating families because of different statuses. If we're talking about their access to reproductive, you know, healthcare, there's a lot of misinformation or just not a lot of knowledge about what immigrants are able to access. And it changes state by state. Recently, we had this federal policy of public charge that really caused a lot of confusion. Public charge was basically saying that if you're an undocumented person and you access certain type of services that might hinder your ability to fix your status right in the future. And so all this does is that it creates a lot of fear in people, and so they're not going to go and access the care and information that they need. If we're talking about issues around language justice, ensuring that services are available in the language that they speak, that they prefer, is super critical. Oftentimes, we have immigrants, many different racial, ethnic, and linguistic backgrounds, a lot of those folks that are coming from Latin American countries don't necessarily speak Spanish. So there's this assumption that if you're immigrating from Guatemala or Mexico, right, that your first language is Spanish, and that is not necessarily the case. There are many, many indigenous communities in these countries that are migrating actually in really big numbers currently. There is no documentation of that in a systematic way. And what I mean by that is a lot of those folks are just getting clumped in as Latino or Latinx or Latinas. And so that is completely invisibilizing these communities that have a very similar migration experience, but have very specific needs as well. When going back to your original question about reproductive justice, it's all of that. It's those four tenants but really ensuring that those four tenets are upheld. And so if you have immigration policies that are separating families, people are not being able to communicate or get the services that they need in the language that they understand, these are all absolutely reproductive justice issues. Mm-hmm.
You are worthy. You are worthy of your choices, your thoughts, your decisions, and your experience, no matter if it's different from everyone else's. Choosing to stand up for someone else's experience, even if it's different from your own, takes courage. Tune in to part two as we discuss moving past the fear and embodying hope to make a change.